In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give great thanks for being able to gather one more time um, to, to hear your word preached uh, this morning and to prepare our hearts for the week ahead, for your rich mercies and small things, the day-to-day things. And we pray that as we continue this final conversation for now on the question of um, Islam and Christianity and the the differences that uh, we continue with humility and remembrance of your love for the entire created order. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning and, and thank you again. This is the third and final installment. Uh, it's good to see you. And um, I, I hope that somehow we can wrap it up. I don't know how you wrap up Islam. I don't think you do. Um, but I hope to take us somewhere uh, meaningful with it. I did not bring the Quran today. I brought the Bible. So um, that's right. I'm back in the fold. I, um, I, so we'll, we'll actually be looking at some scripture uh, toward the end, I hope. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, Dr. Genelette asked me about uh, a resource. Uh, th- this is perhaps the most accessible uh, book I have found by Bernard Lewis of Princeton University. Um, I, I, I like it because it's short and it's uh, not a difficult read. And it does touch upon the theology. Uh, early on, it then develops the idea of jihad and the political uh, circumstances historically and contemporary. Well, I say contemporary. This was written not uh, between the 2001 attacks and the death of Osama bin Laden. So a, a good deal of it deals with um, Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. So when you read it, that's a little bit behind us now. Um, but in terms of accessibility, and I can knock this out in a couple weeks. <laughs> this is a this is where I would uh, this is where I would go, um, and I have gone. All right. So uh, as we kind of press towards some kind of concluding thoughts or summary thoughts, um, I want to recap a bit. But in recapping, develop a bit because I realize this has been a lot. Uh, th- this is a lot to sit through uh, in two weeks. I, I hope to leave time for more conversation uh, this time as well. Um, so let, let's. Re- I want to rehearse five things, five points that I think are absolutely seminal, absolutely foundational for uh, trying to get a grasp on the differences between Christianity and Islam. I have a, I have a note up here. The word became a book. Um, and it, it I'm sure that that could be contested at any number of levels, but in some ways I do think that's the starting point. Um, Whereas we contend the word became flesh, uh, Islam begins with the premise the word became a text. The word became a word, a book. And it is the governing uh, theological and political ideal of the ummah or the community. So what about this book? 
five points to consider uh, as a kind of, uh, if you just want a reference as you move forward thinking about Christianity and Islam. Monotheism. Monotheism. Let's start there. There is one God. You'll recall that in the first uh, lecture, the first uh, meeting we had, I noted that the pre-Islamic Arabs were polytheist, right? They worship multiple gods. But Muhammad was ridiculously successful in eliminating this from the Arabian Peninsula. He was a staunch monotheist. He held to one god, and their devotion, Muslim devotion, is strictly to one god. Allah, and any other deity, any other concept of deity is considered what they call shirk, S-H-I-R-K, blasphemy. It is blasphemy. And this is why Trinitarian theology is an impossibility for Muslim theology or Islamic theology. It's the starting point of, I, w- I would think, arguably every bone of contention. Uh, in, in, in the conversation with, with our Muslim friends. Um, the problem of monotheism. And of course, the, 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 you know, we as Christians belong to a monotheistic uh, tradition as well. We, we too believe that in, in one God, but the expressions of that God uh, take two other forms. Uh, the Christ, the God-man, the flesh, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the spirit. And that is that way God communicates uh, through space and time as uh, drawing us to conviction and into and, and the eyes of faith, we might say. So in the Muslim mind, we are not monotheists. We are tritheist. So that's, a, that's, that's the first point to consider. Second thing to consider, uh, I haven't mentioned this a lot. Uh, Islam teaches, uh, has a theology of angels. Angels or angelology. Uh, we too, as Christians, believe in angels. We have passages that refer to entities in the created order that we are beyond sensory perception, but the Bible references them time and again, manifestations of God's uh, creative mind uh, that we can't quite comprehend uh, in terms of how we know each other. But nevertheless, by faith, the, 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 the scriptures speak of these. Well, the Quran does as well. They call these angels jinn, J-I-N-N. It's our root word for genie, right? Uh, the genies of uh, Aladdin. Um, uh, I'm thinking of the cartoon, but anyway, the genies that come out of bottles. I guess I dream of genie if you're old enough, but um, I don't think that's how they picture it. But the point is, is that uh, they have this concept of other entities. There's, it's a very well-structured organization of angel- angelic beings in uh, Muslim uh, theology. They're capable of mischief, but they're also capable of good deeds. They're also capable of inhabiting or possessing a person in, in Islamic theology. Remember, it was the angel Gabriel 
that confronted Muhammad in the first revelation that began this whole uh, long sort of series of revelations. Uh, there, God is, of course, above the jinn or the angels. Here's what I find uh, most interesting about it under point two on the angels is that um, each Muslim is accompanied by two angels as an accompaniment of two angels. Now, again, I think we have a analog of this. We, talk, we speak of guardian angels in the Christian faith. Now, the theology, whatever the theology of this is, I'm not, I'm not trying to press at this moment. I just want you to see that there is an analog. Um, these uh, angels, these two angels that accompany every Muslim are responsible. One has the responsibility of recording all the good deeds, and one has the responsibility of recording all the bad deeds that a person commits. So that is part of the theological structure. The holy books. Remember this. This is my third point for, for to kind of push us forward. The holy books. Uh, the Quran refers to numerous other texts, numerous other sacred texts. It doesn't exclude them. These include the Mosaic Law, which we've mentioned, uh, certain of the Hebrew prophets uh, and the prophecies from the old, what we would call the Old Testament. The Davidic Psalms are respected in Islamic thought. And of course, the gospel, which was given to Jesus. All Muslim thought holds that these are sacred, that they have a sacristy to them, uh, that they, they have a special place. But the Quran, of course, was revealed and delivered to Muhammad. And the, the problem, as I tried to state last week, is that the original Torah, the original uh, Hebrew prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, if you recall, they've been corrupted. They have been corrupted. They have been um, messed up, uh, clouded by Christian and Jewish writers. And whatever God really intended way back there in the sacred text has just been lost. It's just been lost in the midst of bad interpretation, right? Um, and that this, of course, made necessary a final revelation, which then brings illumination and clarity to all the other sacred uh, books that preceded it. So the Quran then supersedes all previous revelations and truth claims. That's point three to keep in mind. Point four. Point four you want to remember when you think about Christianity and Islam. Muslims hold there has been a long succession of prophets through whom Allah revealed his will. And this is very similar to the, the, the sacred text. There have been people, real people in real history, who have come forth as prophets. From the Quran, uh, Adam is considered a prophet of God. Noah, Abraham, Moses, a number of the minor Hebrew well. Well, yeah, the minor Hebrew prophets, but of course, Jesus is considered a prophet. These are the five or so prophetic predecessors to who? Muhammad. They, they all anticipate Muhammad. In some ways, what you might think, you could think of it this way, they actually said, 
originally what Muhammad had to come clarify. <laughs> That's one way to get at it. Right? That what we know of when we read Moses or we read the patriarchal stories or when we read the Gospels, that's fine, but that's not what really happened. <laughs> you see? So the great correction, the great correction had to take place. And this is uh, Muhammad's correction. And that cleans, cleans up the ambiguity and the distortion that's entered into these other communities. Largely, as I said last week, through two selfish reasons. One, the Jews wanted an, exclusion, an exclusionary covenantal community. The Christians wanted to make Jesus God. These are no-nos. Okay. So God's prophets. And finally, a fifth point to consider. If you're just five points to kind of hang your hat on from this series is resurrection and judgment. Uh, we share this with the Islamic world as in the Christian world. We believe in an eschatology, right? An end time, a, a kind of a, a culmination of history, uh, both in time and in, in space in terms of our bodies. Muslims also believe in a general resurrection of humankind, followed by a final judgment. And but here, and this is very important, uh, in, in 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 Quranic teaching and in Islamic teaching, human works are extremely important to this final judgment. How what we've done, remember our good angels and our bad angels, I'm sorry, our angels following us our angels following us around keeping tabs on us. Um, this is important. Um, how we as Muslims have kept the mandates of Islamic law determines our eternal fate. Uh, Sharia. I'll say more about it in a little bit. How we have lived out the Sharia, the law, determines our fate. And put very simply, and I'm sure, you know, being a, in, in, in a professor, I know the countless debates that probably could break out if we had Muslim scholars in the room, but I, I think it's accurate to say, and I'll, I'll defend it, that those who have accomplished more good deeds than bad deeds receive eternal paradise. It's, it's quite simply um, that straightforward in terms of eschatology and eternity. So keep those five points in mind if you want to know, okay, where are the, where are the, where's the continuity and the discontinuity, right? If you encounter this uh, in your reading, your study, the television, uh, the newspapers. Do we have newspapers? Anyway, you know what I mean. So. So that's that. Well, now, um, let me pause there and to say if there any, because I have a, another little kind of, I want to do a kind of brief evaluation on points of tension, building off those five categories. And then from there, I'd like to move to a kind of uh, where we are today. And then and maybe, and I, I really like to push this back to scripture at the end of this. So are there any comments or thoughts or questions at this moment? Anything the last three sessions? Great. So let's talk about the points of tension between Islam and Christianity. Um, I, I will, I'll be blunt. Uh, apart from those five things I just mentioned, um, I think 
and I, 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 I think I'm in good turf here, there's very little compatibility between the two religious systems. Um, those are good overlaps that don't mean the same thing, the five things I just said. But, um, you know, at the risk of, of not sounding very politically correct, I do think there's deep theological incompatibility uh, between them. And there's three areas, I think, for, for our purposes that help us understand this, the points of tension. The first is the nature of God. The second is the revelation of God. And related to the third, and maybe the most important, is the means of salvation. I think if we, if we take the five points I just said and then kind of turn toward those three questions, those three categories I just mentioned, that's where you're going to see the most incompatibility between them, as, between Christianity and Islam as religious system. Um, and, and I think, honestly, with the few Muslim friends I've interacted with in grad school who perhaps, and, and who know some of the, the theology, I think in, in all honesty and all respect, they would, they would agree with me. I don't think this would be a, oh no, we, we love Jesus. Well, we might, okay, but we might love him different ways. And I think they would agree with that. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, The nature of God. As I just indicated, Islam is a stringent monotheism. The Trinitarian concept of deity, according to Islam and uh, the, the Christian pattern, is tritheism. We worship three different gods. We do not worship one god. Uh, this uh, arguably is a deep misunderstanding of how Christianity interprets the relationship between the Father and the Son, between God and Jesus. Um, one of the great problems for the Muslim mind, and this is similar to early Gnostic or um, sort of peop really like educated people struggling with Christianity from, from the Greeks, and, and is how can you be how can Christ be generated without sexual union? Uh, th this is a this is a deep problem. Um, because it doesn't, how does something immutable become mutable? How does something incorruptible become corrupted? And of course, um, uh, in the mind both of the ancient Gnostics and in the mind of Muslims, uh, the idea that God, Jesus is the Son implies sexual generation. There's no, the incarnation is, a the, is not theologically available as a category. Right. And, and to be fair, it, it was well, to be fair, we still have the Unitarian tradition in the West and we have um, a long history in the West of really struggling. Well, was was Jesus just kind of did God just kind of, kind of bless him like a Superman? Get out there. You know, was it that kind of a thing or was it, um, you know, um, uh, did, did God sort of disfavor him more than other men? You, you know what I'm saying? So there's, there is this tension in our own Western Christian thought. The, the Orthodox Church, uh, and I'm using that word broadly, over the years, Catholic and Protestant, has determined no. Uh, the incarnation uh, can be substantiated through Scripture and understood 
uh, that Christ was not born of sexual union. Um, so physical uh, procreation is a problem when it comes to talking about God. So we describe Jesus as the only begotten son of God. We do not believe this is a physical act of procreation, but it's, a, <coughs> excuse me, it's one of relationship. It, it's, it's one, I, I think, safely, we can call this as part of the decrees of God. It belongs to the mind of God. Uh, John Calvin warns, be careful. Be careful when you start playing around with the decrees of God. You can get lost in a labyrinth. But we accept these decrees of God uh, co consistently. We, creation is a decree of God. Why did God create? His glory? Okay. I, I got to go to work. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure what the next question is. Why, why did God elect? Why Abraham? Uh, you see what I'm saying? The mind of God contains its own reasons. The incarnation belongs to this. It belongs to this decree of God. Uh, but we do not hold it's an act of procreation. It's unique as a relational, as an ontological, sorry, as an ontological, as a being, as a kind of uh, a necessity of being from all time. Uh, that's how we understand our Christology. So if you accept that, what you see with Islam is they have a very high transcendent view of God. Very transcendent, um, totally, uh, almost totally disassociated from the physical and created order in some ways. Uh, very much uh, it, it, the personality that we find in Christian thought is absent, right? The personality of God. And, and I think most, especially as I'll show momentarily, the, the way we understand, way we in Christian thought understand the love of God, the ultimate expression of his personality. So God is detached from human existence, so we can't really know his essence in Islamic thought. We simply have it mediated through the word of, of the Quran, uh, what God wants us to do. And in, in, in Christian theology, we actually believe by some great, great act of mysterious but, but wonderful grace, God has given us a glimpse of his essence, his essential nature. And that to know his essential nature is to know him through Christ. And this is a vocabulary we simply don't share with our Muslim friends. Another aspect of the nature of God to consider under, under this, this category is if we can't know his essence, another, another problem, another language problem we have is God can be very arbitrary. God can be very arbitrary in Islamic theology. Um, you know, the, the Bible uh, tells us in places how God has circumscribed his nature for us, right? It doesn't in any way take away from his sovereignty or his transcendence. But his love for his created order, his love for us, creates and generates mercy. And so what we can see is that God himself has determined who he is in relation to us. 
And we don't have to fear arbitrariness or winsomeness or a violation of his nature. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the passage from the prayer book when we read it is God's uh, it is his nature to be merciful. I'm trying to remember the language outlet His property. The property of God is to show mercy. See, that, that's what, in Christian language, that's how we know that, that God has made himself available to us. This is absent. There's an arbitrariness, a randomness to God's ways in Islamic thought. Second point, the second of the, of the three uh, differences. The Quran, which we've mentioned before, I'll be brief here. Um, one way to, I've said this before, but I, I, think it, I think it's critical that one way to understand and comprehend the love of the Quran, the love of the word of Quran, is to think about how we love Jesus. Um, in, in many ways in the Muslim mind, the affection that is held for that word, that law, those commands is the same way we have affection for Christ, especially when we find ourselves in need and not leaning on our own ability, etc. When we all of a sudden have that realization, God loves us. Well, I think Muslims would tell you, well, no, how do you know God loves you? Well, the Quran. That's how we know God loves us. Why? Because he told us what to do. He told us what to do. So keep that in mind. If you want to compare the Quran to anything within our faith, compare it to how we understand Jesus. Not in terms of death and resurrection. I'll say that in a moment. Not in terms of atonement, but in terms of how God has revealed himself. Right? We, we too have a word. But as I'll read momentarily, our word became what? Flesh. And here we begin to speak a different theological language. Um, the Quran is the linguistic representation of God's eternity, his eternal wor word. While we believe, while Christianity believes um, that the divine word became a human, this is extremely problematic as I've, as I've outlined. Um, and in turn, the humanity of God, the as we understand it, in Christ in the flesh becomes a deep problem in terms of his crucifixion, his death. Uh, this, again, is very similar to what I just said about progeneration, about sexual union. How can a God suffer and die? All right? It's an old, old problem that Christianity answers. So the, and the idea of a suffering God, not just in a fleshy God, but a suffering God is absent. Third point, the means of salvation. This, this is, uh, these other two build up on, uh, to this point. Um, we, of course, believe there's no, nothing we can do behavior-wise that can liberate us from the bondage of sin. We are in need of a Savior. We are in a critical condition. God's motivated by his love entered into human history offered his sinless life for humanity. Uh, we have image after image of this in the New Testament. We have financial images 
of this, of a, of a monetary exchange, uh, uh, of a contract. We have military language, sacrificial language, legal language. None of this is accessible in the Quran. None of this is accessible in Islamic thought. Uh, now, granted, when we talk about our faith or how God made this exchange for us, this atonement, <laughs> yes, Christians debate this, right? We've got many schools of thought that are floating around the Western world, especially, over time that have debated what this means, the most dramatic, of course, being the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. But nevertheless, the language is there. The vocabulary is there. We have these analogies over and over again in the Gospels about what it mean, this exchange means. So the debate may continue, but none of us, none really in between the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant world really disagree that God took the initiative to save sinners. We don't disagree on that. Um, so there is no room related to the first point about incarnation, fleshiness, monotheism. There's no room for a suffering savior in Islamic thought. There's absolutely no room for that. Um, John of Damascus. John of Damascus, who I'm sure you guys were reading earlier this week. He, uh, he lived from around 675 to 749 uh, uh, A.D. He was a Syrian monk and scholar. And he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a number of books, but he wrote an exposition called Concerning Heresies. Now, note, note the window where he lived, uh, 675 to 749. This would have been the peak growth of the uh, Umayyad dynasty, the Arabic, uh, the Arabic uh, dynasty that had spread through North Africa and up into southern Spain within this window of history. So he's living in Syria, which would have been Byzantine or what we would call uh, Eastern Orthodox world at this time. He's raising, he lives and dies in this, but he sees this. He sees this, and he's one of the first uh, persons who records uh, Islam uh, and the meaning of Islam for, for, the, for the church. But what's interesting is, and what's something to keep in mind, Islam was not seen as another religion by John of Damascus. Islam was understood as a heresy. Okay? It was in this, what John of Damascus says here, it, it reports through the centuries. It echoes through the centuries, for many, many centuries. It's not really until the early modern period that we begin to think of Islam as a separate religion. Okay? Uh, like, like Judaism or Bantuism, you know, something like that. That's in the East, but you know what I mean. So let me just read quickly what, what he says. He says that Muhammad devised this heresy. This is a quote from John of Damascus. There is also the superstition of the Ishmaelites, which to this day prevails and keeps people in error, being a forerunner of Antichrist. They are descended from Ishmael, who was born to Abraham of Hagar, and for this reason, they are called Agarinus and Ishmaelites, Hagarinus. From that time to the present, a false prophet named Muhammad has appeared in their midst. 
This man, after having chanced upon, this man, after having chanced upon the Old and New Testament, and likewise it seems having conversed with an Arian monk, that was an ancient heresy, Arianism, which believed Jesus was not God, but was kind of God's Superman. Like God gave him the power to be like God, but he wasn't God. After he had read the Old and New Testaments, after he had conversed with an Arian monk, he devised, Muhammad devised his own heresy, then having insinuated himself into the good graces of the people by a show of seeming piety, he gave out that a certain book had been sent down to him from heaven. <laughs> John of Damascus, he had set down some ridiculous compositions in this book of his and gave it to them as an object of veneration. That's about a thousand years old. Now, interesting, he also is the first to note how they how Muslims understood Christ. He says, there, this is Muhammad, he says, there's one God creator of all things who has neither been nor begotten nor has begotten. Um, Christ is a creature and a servant. Okay? He was the child of Mary. So, he, John is one of the, John of Damascus, John Damascene is one of the first records we have that says they Remember the kaleidoscope. These aren't lining. These aren't lining up. Whatever he's saying, he's got these hints, almost like a broken code, is the way John describes it. You got pieces. You know, we got pieces of this, but the way Muhammad has put them back together, it, in John's word, he says it's it's ridiculous. That's not what we believe, right? So keep in mind that's a thousand years old. It was originally considered a heresy. Now. Having covered that, let me say a word about the times we live in. Um, this is an independent lecture in and of itself, <laughs> so forgive me for the brevity here. Um, you cannot understand where we are today without understanding um, a lot. You really have to deal with the legacy of imperialism and most especially the breakup of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One, and the redrawing of what we call national boundaries uh, in the wake of World War One, and the creation of Palestine, Syria, Jordan, uh, Iraq, Iran. These are really about a hundred, less than a hundred years old as national expressions. And one scholar notes, religion, uh, Islam is a um, is a religion uh, that has nations, whereas Westerners are nations that have religions. <laughs> and this makes for a difficult kind of conversation as well. But also, you are looking at um, the redistribution and redrawing of boundaries that don't meet ethnic and historical conditions. That's a reality. Uh, you're looking at vast Western profits over the last century, um, while Millions of, of, of Muslims in the underclass grow exponentially and see a very small uh, percentage of their leaders flourish uh, financially. What we've also seen uh, of late is uh, the shift in terrorism. Uh, terrorism has not been a, a part of the history of Islam. Uh, our word for assassin comes from the Muslim world. In the 1200s, 1000 in the 1200s, assassins uh, were part, very much a part, but they were political. Their goal was political. 
it was it was taking down the caliphs and the imams they did not believe were right. Okay, terror in and of itself is a modern phenomenon the way we understand it. There's been a deep shift, mainly from targeting political figures to targeting civilians. Now I know I'm not telling anybody anything you don't know. Uh, this has primarily been from the 1960s forward. But what I want you to know, as as we press toward the end here, is that uh, for theological reasons, something to keep in mind is that suicide is forbidden in the Quran. The Quran does not allow for suicide. Within the Muslim world, this is a deep point of theological contention, which, le which I hope leads us to understand we're not dealing with a uniform interpretation of a people group that consists of one and a half million, um, almost a billion people, right? It is a deeply contested issue. It's new on the scene in terms of targeting civilians and what is actually involved with it uh, as far as the reward of suicide. And not all Muslim um, theological leaders agree with what's happening with that. So that's what I wanted to emphasize about the contemporary situation. Um, Final thought, and then I'll open it up for questions. Um, I'll just read a couple of passages from from Scripture. Um, I, I believe, uh, I, and I think we can safely say that our Muslim friends, are, uh, the Muslim people, uh, they are created in the image of God. Uh, they are part of the the created order, and they have a rich an important history uh, that, that we must, as Westerners, uh, respect and learn from. But I also think it's fair to say, and we can say it in a Christian context, that the scriptures warn us in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Um, we can separate ideas and people in our theology. It's one of the gifts we have to love people but understand that some ideas are bad <laughs> and perhaps even deceitful. That's part of what we're commissioned to do. Matthew 7, 5, so I'm sorry, 7, 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And finally, um, Matthew 24, 24, For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect. point here is not in any way, I think, to nudge us toward a kind of satisfaction. <laughs> by, by all means, no. If anything, it's fear and trembling. Uh, that our God has commanded us to be vigilant about these these representation and these ideas, uh, whether it is Islamic in its expression or, or another type of expression. And none of that takes away from the expression of love that we are supposed to have for our fellow humans. None of that. Vigilance and awareness does not negate love. Let me close with this, because if you believe these words, you 
are you're in an incompatible position in this world with Islam and, and other expressions. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light that shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Sorry again, questions, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, not easily, not easily. Um, this is uh, uh, this this belongs, of course, to the struggle of jihad. It's there at the beginning. It's there very early in the early revelations of Muhammad, um, and they also essentially, if you don't submit to Islamic Sharia or law according to Islamic teaching, you can be eliminated for apostasy. This has not been exercised with any consistency in history. None. Uh, any more than we can say the Crusades are the mark of how, what we all believe as Christians. It just, it is, it, these, are, these are all, these interpretations are all subject to sort of various circumstances through time. So it's not easy. And it's even more complicated now that the problem of suicide terror has entered into the Western world um, the last 50 years. Is, is that addressed in the Quran? The eliminating, yes, yes. Yes, the elimination of the unbeliever is addressed in the Quran. It is. But it's subject to various interpretations. Think of our imprecatory psalms. If you, we have these psalms. We have, we have, if you took a passage from Numbers or the psalms out of context, right, and read it about dashing a baby's, the enemy's, your enemy's baby's skulls or going into the land and killing all the men, women, and children. Well, this is hard, this is hard stuff, right? This is hard medicine. Yet, uh, centuries of thought and interpretation, uh, the providence of God, how, you know, these things have shaped how we've come to understand this, that this is part of a redemptive historical narrative. Um, not exactly the same, but sort of the same. You have different interpretations of these passages in the Quran. Although we're not currently crusading, they are. Yes. Yes. Yeah, there's an interesting, a lot of interesting studies on the relationship between jihad and crusade in the language of those two words. Yeah. Tom. How does science, in particular cosmology, fit into Islamic thought? Well, they do believe that God is the creator. Uh, they don't. They don't believe. Uh, they do believe God made everything, but beyond that, not a lot. Uh, not a lot. Now, where science and Islam really found a nice marriage was when they, before Christians, discovered Aristotle and the works of the Greeks. And in particular, uh, this led to a huge sort of fundamentalist controversy in the 900s 
1000s in Islam because all of a sudden you had Islamic monotheists saying, hey, we actually can interpret the world, world apart from the Quran. That it actually can have meaning apart from the Quran. And this led to a huge blow up. But it also in some ways gave the birth pains of what becomes modern science. Um, so as far as cosmology goes, I'm a little limited. As far as science goes, uh, they were some of the first. Uh, Abyssina, uh, Averroes um, in Spain led a, led a quiet revolution. Uh, not so quiet in their world. But eventually this trickles into the West and we have our own conflict with this. You know, what do we do with revelation as, as plenary as the word and as we experience in history and creation? So Islam was one of the first to wrestle with this problem. Yes, ma'am. Jason, this may be a much bigger question, but when you, when you talk about um, terrorism and, and other techniques that are being used, yeah. dating back only to the, to the mid-60s, we know that a lot of the events that took place in the Middle East were kind of a proxy war for the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Yeah, in the mid-century, yeah. I mean, is there an overlap yeah. between the, the, the pernicious influences of the yeah. Violent communism as it relates to this. I mean, I let me let me say that. Let me. That's that's great. That's really good. The first sort of fatwa issued by Osama bin Laden, uh, it, not accidental. The first sort of attempt to declare war against the West actually came in 1991. Two things were going on in 1991: the Gulf War. And the Soviet Union collapsed. And to Matt's point, as long as you, what historically, what has, has kind of kept the balance, the equilibrium, has been the idea that the West has enemies. <laughs> and as long as those enemies can be negotiated, like the Soviets at the time, the Russians, then we have a kind of ballast. We, can, we don't have to be the big dog on the block. We can use these proxy wars. We can use these uh, as our, um, our leverage in this. Well, Osama bin Laden, one of the cunning sort of insights of, of bin Laden was with the Soviet Union gone now and with, and with those proxy wars now disintegrating into one massive sort of invasion of Arabia, the Holy Land. Palestine's not the Holy Land. Arabia is. Using Saudi Arabia to bomb Iraq. We now have to take the war upon it. We have to take the cause upon ourselves. We, we now have to become what what used to be the job of the Russians, right? So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.